0: Have you ever had a good cookie? This is not a story about a good cookie, unfortunately, because I really like cookies. And if you like cookies, and you have a favorite cookie recipe, and you want to make some cookies and send them to me, I am totally open to that. Just if you're going to make raisin cookies, would you let me know, because I just need to be emotionally prepared for the fact that it's a raisin and not a chocolate chip. That can be very disappointing. But I love cookies and so I like to make cookies. And I would say that snickerdoodles are not my favorite cookie, but Megan really likes them. So this one particular day we decided that we would make snickerdoodles. So we get out all the ingredients and we recognize that we didn't have all purpose flour, but we had wheat flour. So we're like, well, how different can it be? Let's just use wheat flour in the snickerdoodle recipe. And so we made our snickerdoodles and you roll them up in a ball and then you, you, know, you put them in a line on the cookie sheet and we put them into the oven and I don't know, 12, 16 minutes, however long you bake snickerdoodles. We pulled them back out and they were still in their round ball state. And we're like, huh, something didn't work right. And because I'm an eternal optimist, my glass is always half full. I said to Megan, well, they didn't actually flatten out but I bet they taste just the same. And so I picked one up and I nearly broke my tooth because they were as hard as a rock. Uh, Somebody this morning when I preached this sermon said, you know what you do is you just drop it in hot chocolate and then it dissolves and it's really good. I'm like, that's brilliant. But as far as snickerdoodles go, they were terrible. And what we realized was you cannot take a snickerdoodle recipe, which calls for all-purpose flour, and put wheat flour on that. Because wheat flour soaks up a whole lot more moisture and you just get this dry, nasty cookie. And when you take two things that don't belong together and put them together, it generally ruins the product. So what about now if we talk instead about cookies, if we talked about our relationship to Jesus? And in the Bible, we learn how what a relationship with Jesus should look like. But what happens if we add something else to that, something that doesn't really belong? It has a tendency to ruin it, just like wheat flour will ruin the snickerdoodle. It's like we have this picture of what it is like to follow Jesus, and sometimes we take other things and we add it in there, and it tends to ruin what we already have. And that's what Moses is thinking about in the passage that we're going to look at today. We've been thinking about moving into a new territory, just like the Israelites at this time. They're ready to go into the land that God has promised them and also called them to. And we've lived for almost a year now in this coronavirus uh, situation and we can see the light at on the horizon we're we're getting ready to move into this new territory and we know that there are going to be some challenges that we face moving into the future and moses knows that too and so in this section he's going to talk with them about another one of the challenges that they're going to face angela talked about one of them last week this is the next challenge that Moses is gonna talk to them about. And essentially Moses boils it down to this. You're going to face the challenge of being lazy. I mean, think about this. They've been wandering around in the desert for 40 years. It's gonna take some effort to enter into the land and people are gonna go, oh, finally we're here. It's been such a long journey. Oh my gosh, it's been so hard. I'm just so tired, I can't do another thing. Moses is like, you're gonna face the challenge of losing your edge you're just going to get lazy the second challenge that Moses tells them that they're going to have is the challenge to compromise and that's where we get back to the snickerdoodle story because they're going to put together Two things that don't go together. They've got this relationship. They've got this covenant with God. And they're entering into a land where there are a bunch of other gods. And they're going to be very tempted to compromise and put two things together that don't belong. The big fancy word for that is syncretism. When we take two things that don't belong together, we merge them together, that's syncretism. And hardly anybody gets up in the morning and goes, I think I'll compromise this morning, or I think I'll be syncretistic. But you approach it, we approach it the way that Megan and I did with wheat flour. It's like, oh, how much different can it be? How, how bad can it be? It, it's pretty similar, right? And that's where we start to get into trouble because we can't move into new territory in a half-hearted way. We can't move into new territory and be lazy. We can't move into new territory and compromise. And honestly, moving into new territory half-heartedly is one of my biggest fears. I'm really afraid that we're going to forget what we have learned this time. When this whole quarantine began last March, I sat on the couch every single morning and read systematically through the Minor Prophets. And I wanted to do that because I wanted to hear how God's people found God present during the rough times. I wanted to hear how God's word was always about hope and restoration and grace and love. So I did that every single morning. And at noon, like many of you, I stopped and I read a psalm and I prayed. And in many ways, it was a rich, rich time. But the honest truth is, I'm getting busy again. And it's easy to let that stuff slide. And I'm watching churches, even in our own neighborhood, even in our surrounding areas, that are preparing to go forward to the past. And if they go forward to the past, it is not going to be helpful for the cause of the kingdom. And and I don't want to be like that. And my biggest concern isn't that we would go back to 2019, because 2019 was pretty great, but it still isn't what we need to do. My biggest concern is that we would go back more than a decade ago when in many ways, Harbor Covenant Church was a country club. I don't want to go back to that. If we're going to move forward into new territory, if we're going to make a difference for the kingdom of God, we can't be half-hearted and we can't compromise and we can't get lazy. So let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Gergesites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. So let's take the bull by the horns. This is one of the two most difficult chapters in the Bible, this and Deuteronomy chapter 20, because these are the chapters that talk about what we perceive to be genocide. This is where God commands his people to wipe other people groups off of the face of the earth, to kill men, women, children, all their livestock, everything. And because it sounds like that's what God is calling people to do, What's developed from that is this idea that the God of the Old Testament is vengeful and warlike and hateful. And the God of the New Testament is loving and gracious and kind. And effectively, that means that there are two separate gods. And that's extremely problematic. So uh, since they don't believe that there are two separate gods, and since they have a hard time believing that God, even in a context, calls people to genocide. Let's dive into this a little bit and look at this really difficult passage. So first off, when we're looking at something that's really hard in the Bible, I think that we have to approach it with some degree of humility. We have to say, I might be wrong. Now I've done my homework, I think I'm right, but I might be wrong. And it might be a good thing for all of us to get out a post-it note and leave it where we can see it and write that on it. Now, for the sake of clarity, I don't want you to write, Michael might be wrong on your post-it note. I want you to write, you might be wrong. It's just good to remember that we don't have all knowledge. And so it's good to approach this stuff with some humility. So with that in mind, there's a couple of things to consider. When we're looking at this harem, which is the technical term for it, It actually means devoting everything to God, but it means you devote it to God by killing it. Um, It seems as if from the biblical text that this was carried out in only four places. It wasn't carried out in a widespread way throughout the land just from the biblical text itself, which we can see. From personal experience, I have stood at almost every single single major site that is mentioned in these texts. And I can tell you that there is no archaeological evidence for a mass destruction of towns in Canaan at this time. So that's, uh, that's something that has to be considered. We need to put that into the hopper. And even at the four places that it mentioned that it's carried out, there's even some doubt there about whether or not it actually happened. So let's think about that. Also, there are other comments in the text which raise some questions. For instance, as soon as it says to kill everything, to devote it to the Lord, it also prohibits intermarriage. Well you can't intermarry with people if they're dead. See what I'm getting at here? So already that begins to raise questions of, did it really happen? And was that really what Moses and God was intending in the first place to wipe everything out? And you also have other instances in the text where there are instructions to take the town whole and not kill everything. So we need to begin to wrestle with what exactly was Moses getting at, what exactly was God requiring of them, and was it really genocide? And I also think, in the spirit of humility, that sometimes it's really good for us to be honest with ourselves and to look inside of ourselves. Because if we're going to accuse God of genocide, then I think we need to look at some of our attitudes towards other people and people groups. Because I remember quite clearly that after 9-11, there was an awful lot of people within the church who would have been very happy to wipe every Arab off the face of the earth. And let's also acknowledge that there are people and people groups who on a practical level, we don't seem to value. And we don't seem to be too disturbed when terrible things happen to them. There are people and people groups that we look at sometimes through political lenses rather than through the lens of them being bearers of the image of God. So we need to be careful about our own attitudes. I think we also have to recognize that no matter what this text means, that we are not God's agent for destroying people that we don't agree with. Now, I don't think too many of us would actually stoop to genocide in its literal sense, but I've seen an awful lot of social media posts which are designed to destroy someone. And I've seen families torn apart, Christian families, because of political or ideological differences, and that's not what this text is about. So what I want to posit to you is that perhaps Deuteronomy chapter 7 is rhetorical. This is a sermon that Moses is preaching. And perhaps what he's telling them is never meant to be taken seriously in the sense of actually killing people, but he's using that perhaps as metaphor. And I think that's how we can get into what he's talking about. Because the, the genocidal statements here, I think function as metaphor for what God really wants, which is complete and total fidelity and devotion to him and not to other things. And I think the reason that that is true comes out in verse five, when it says, this is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. Those are all worship centers. Those are all gods that would compete, that become the wheat flour in the snickerdoodle recipe. And so the key takeaway for me For me, what Moses is getting at is that we as Jesus followers need to ruthlessly remove anything in our lives that will distract us from following Jesus or that will lead us astray. You can't dabble with foreign gods because if you dabble with foreign gods, the other gods will win and it will not end well for you. So let's stop a second. Before we move into this new territory, we really have to examine our hearts and find out whether or not we are completely committed to Jesus or whether our allegiance lies somewhere else or whether we're trying to put things together that don't belong. And the reason that that is so important is not just for us, but it's for the reason that God has called us, which comes out in verse six. For you're a people holy to the Lord your God, The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God. Keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. So, what do we learn from that? God chose you, God chose us. But God chose us for a purpose. And what Moses is referring here is back to the Abrahamic covenant, where god says to abraham i'm going to choose you so that you can be a blessing to all peoples we're going to have a special relationship not just so that you can hoard that to yourselves but so that you can demonstrate what it looks like to know and love god to other people and then they'll want that too because god's plan and purpose is to love and redeem everyone so god chose us but he chose us for a purpose so what does that mean for us boots on the ground reality It means that God loves us, but God doesn't love us more. And we need to let the impact of that sink in. We're not entitled to more. We're not better than other people. If there's anything that separates us from other people, it's of the to whom much is given, much is required variety. And rather than celebrating any perceived exceptionalism on our part, We need to recognize that one day Jesus will tell us a story, and it will be a story about people who are hungry, it'll be a story about people who are thirsty, people who are naked, and people who are in prison, and then Jesus is going to ask us what we did about that. Those are the things that we have to keep in mind, not some sense of the fact that God loves us better. One of the critical things that we have to think about as we move into new territory is that god is asking us to help him let the world know that god loves them and wants to have a relationship with them we were in santa barbara last week and it was the first time we've been able to be with my mother-in-law in in a long time so that was great but it also gave us a chance to be with Allie, our younger daughter and there's lots of great hikes in the santa barbara area so we hiked and we ran we did all kinds of things that we like And Allie told us about a hike that she had been on a couple weeks before. Uh, The topography of Santa Barbara is that the 3,000-foot mountains basically meet the sea. There's this little narrow coastal strip, and so um, the mountains go up straight away. So lots of hiking. And on this one trail, there is a hot springs. And it's about a mile and a half in, not a bad walk, but it's straight up. And Allie had never been on this hike before, so she and her girlfriend went up looking for the hot springs. And they got up where they thought the hot springs were, and they found another woman who was there. And where they were, there was just like little tiny mud puddles. And Allie is like, well, this can't be the hot springs. So they asked this other woman who was there, they're like, is this the hot springs or are they somewhere else? And the woman said, oh no, there's just not very much water right now. If you come at another time of year, there's more water, but this is, this is where they are right now. And then the woman went off. And Allie and her friend were like, this, this can't be it. There's gotta be more to the hot springs than this. And so they poked around a little bit and they go around a corner and there in all of the, their glory are these hot springs. There's, I don't know, six, seven, ten pools that are filled with water. And in one of the closest pools is the woman that they had talked to with her arms up, enjoying the, the hot springs. And Ali is like, you've got to be kidding. What kind of person says, oh yeah, this is it. No, no, there are no other hot springs. You know, I mean, what kind of person just keeps all of this to themselves? It's like, what, you knew they were there, but you wouldn't share? But I wonder how many times we do that. I mean, we have the source of life. We have hope. We need to point people to the hot springs, not just soak in the springs ourselves. And you might say, if somebody asked me where the hot springs were, of course I would tell them. I wouldn't not tell them where the hot springs are. Well, that's great. But there's also a difference between answering someone who asks you a direct question and going out and looking for people who look like they could stand to be in the hot springs. Those are two very different things. And what God is calling us to do is to be actively aware of the love that he has for other people and to share the location of the hot springs with them and not hoard it to ourselves. God's plan is to love all people and to reach the world through us. And so he continues. Verse 11. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine and olive oil, the cows of your herds and the lambs of your flocks in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor will any of your livestock be without young. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict on them on all who hate you. You must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. Moses is reminding the people of God's faithfulness, that God will take care of their needs. And so we need to remain faithful to God as he is faithful to us. And so in reminding the people of God's faithfulness, Moses brings up the things that they need in life. And so here is a list of everything that they need to have. And right at the top of the list is this idea of fertility. So in that day and age, family fertility was absolutely paramount because children helped you do the work, Children ensured that your legacy lived on, and children secured advantageous relationships for your family. Everybody wanted to be fertile and have lots of kids. The other thing that needed to be fertile was the land. Fertility of the crops was critical. There were no supermarkets. You couldn't get avocados from Mexico in January. If your crops didn't produce, you starved. And so the fertility of your land was an enormous deal. And then Moses talks a little bit more about specifically what that looks like. And he reminds them that God will provide the fertility that they need in order to survive. And Moses does this in a very interesting way that doesn't come over very well in English. In verse 13, Moses says, God will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land. There's the fertility. And then he talks about in what ways. Your grain, new wine, and olive oil, the cows of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks, and the land he swore to give your ancestors to you. These are all the things that you need. And what he's saying is, God promises that he will be faithful and provide these things so you don't need to pray to the Canaanite gods to give you these things. That's what he's coming against. You can trust God. You don't have to be a religious syncretist. Now we live in an era of religious tolerance and that's all well and good. But if I were, let's be clear here, if I were to show you pictures of the Canaanite fertility gods, I would get letters and emails. These are not G-rated gods. These were very offensive things that required very offensive things from people. So this is not what Moses wants people chasing after. And so now to further emphasize God's faithfulness and the fact that we don't need to chase after these other gods, Moses does this thing in Hebrew that does not come over in English he changes the words when he says God will provide the grain that you need remembering that Hebrew doesn't have vowels the word for grain is Dagon he doesn't use the word Dagon he uses the word Dagon Dagon is the chief god of the Philistines Dagon is the one that falls in Samson's time. When he talks about your wine, the common Hebrew word for wine is yayin. Moses uses a very interesting word, which is actually the name of the god Tirshu, who is the god of wine. When he talks about olive oil, the word for olive oil is MN. Moses uses a unique word, yahar, which is the name of the god of the olive oil. When Moses uses the phrase, the calves of your herd, the common word for that is a gel. Moses uses the word shigar, which is also the name of a local deity. And the most obvious one, the easiest to recognize for us, is the phrase, the lambs of your flock. The common Hebrew word for that would be kebesh. Moses uses a unique word, which is ishtar. Ishtar is the goddess of fertility these are all of the local gods that people pray to in order to have grain in order to have wine in order to have olive oil in order for their flocks and their herds to increase in order to have children these are the gods of the culture and moses is saying you don't need to pray to them you don't need to serve them god will give you all of the things that you need only he will do it in their pure and unadulterated form Because if you chase after these gods, it is going to be a bad deal. It will be tempting to serve them. Other people will be praying to them. You'll have needs and it will seem normal to devote yourself to them, but it won't lead you to life. It'll lead you to destruction. Well, most of us are not tempted to follow Ishtar or the god of olive oil, but there are gods in our culture too. What are some of those gods? I'm a girl dad, and I ache for women, for the pressure that they have to look a certain way. Now, it's not mine to judge, and I've known a lot of women that have had some sort of cosmetic, cosmetic surgery for whatever reason. But right now, I'm watching a celebrity who first turned themselves into a human Ken doll with cosmetic surgery and now has switched gender and really is a parody of what our cultural ideal of femininity is don't worship at the altar of that god that requires those things of you in order to feel beautiful just don't another of the god of our cultures is the god of control and having it all together many of us had a mutual friend who committed suicide several years ago because he felt like he had lost control of his life And just this last week, a a kid committed suicide during the recent stock market craziness because he didn't read a statement correctly and thought he was $700,000 in debt when he wasn't. Don't serve the God that lies to you and says that you are in control or should be in control. There's the God of money, and I love this example for this. I was watching a show that had an interview with Katy Perry in it. If you don't know who Katy Perry is, your kids and your grandkids do. And in this, in this show, Katy Perry was saying, I haven't always had this position. She's like, when I was growing up, trying to get started, I couch surfed. She said, I've had a car repossessed before. I know what it's like to be broke. And then she said, and now I have all of this, and what I know is that none of this will make me happy. I'm like, oh, Katy, that'll preach. Money and stuff, will never make you happy and yet we spend an awful lot of time chasing after those things what other cultural gods do we have that you would name those gods are a bit insidious because you think what's wrong with being in control If I'm in control, I can help other people. Or what's wrong with looking your best? Don't we want to do that? Or what's wrong with being wealthy? If I have money, I can support charities. You know, if God smites me with $10 million, I could give so much of that away. Well, may God smite me. But the problem is that those don't end up being that pure and they lead us to unhealthy places. God will give us what we need in their pure and unadulterated sense. So we stand at the brink of this new future, of moving into new territory as we come out of this wacky, tragic COVID year. And as is often the case, we've been somewhat isolated here in Gig Harbor. There have been a lot of places that have suffered much more than we have. I talked recently to a friend who's lost six members of their family to COVID-19 over the past year. I know lots of people who have lost their jobs. And even here in the harbor, there are a lot of people who are in the service economy who right away lost their jobs, the people who needed them most. We know lots of people here in Gig Harbor and around other place who are just devastatingly alone And doing all kinds of crazy things because mentally they are just at the breaking point we're entering into this new time when people are lonely and hopeless and desperate to be loved and they're going to start chasing after all of the cultures gods and it's not going to lead them where they think it will and that's why it's so important that we understand the purpose that God has for us these people they don't need bad snickerdoodles they don't need a hybrid religion those gods will not bring them the life they need a picture they need us to show them that there is a living God who comes among us in Jesus who is filled with hope and peace and significance and forgiveness they need to know that they're loved and God has given us the purpose to show them if we're not too lazy And if we don't compromise. So let me ask you three questions. The first is, what God of this culture are you most likely to follow? Second, in what ways have you been syncretistic? Third, is there anything that you need to ruthlessly remove from your